Children can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. Open up your Bibles to the book of Malachi once again. Malachi chapter 2. Let's ask God's blessing once again as we look at his holy word. Father, we once again approach you this morning. Help us, give us understanding according to these words through your Holy Spirit. You know what each and every single one of us needs to deal with today. And Lord, what you have decreed, what you have ordered according to your word, bring it to pass. Sanctify believers, draw sinners to repentance as we see the glories of this text. In your name we pray, amen. We've been going through the book of Malachi for the last five weeks. Today's, I think, sermon number six in this book. Last week we saw how the Lord rebukes the people of Israel because of their unfaithfulness. And really, that's the whole story of the book of Malachi. Malachi is about the people of Israel being in a state of apathy. That is passionless worship. And they've allowed themselves to sink deep into this level because of their unfaithfulness to God. And their disobedience to his word. We saw last week that they were unfaithful to God by marrying the other peoples of the land. And adopting their gods. And incorporating the worship of those gods into their worship. We saw how God forbid that. But they still chose to do what they wanted to do. We also saw how the Lord rebuked them for being faithless to one another. Not only were they forsaking um, God and going after other gods of the other peoples, but they were also forsaking their own marriages, breaking their covenantal vows with their spouses and, and fleeing and running away from God towards other people and disregarding their marriage, their marriage covenant. Then, of course, we concluded the sermon by glorying in the gospel. We were reminded how marriage is a picture of our relationship with God and the gospel And praise the Lord for a faithful God who will never leave us, forsake us, or divorce us. Amen. Look at verse 17. We're going to pick it up right there. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, I cannot be confident this morning, but I don't think we're getting any further than that sentence. We have read through verse 5 of chapter 3, and we may get there, but I don't know. There's a lot in those words, in that sentence, in verse 17. And in my study, I could not get past that sentence after several pages of notes and study. So we will see what the Lord has for us today. And if we make it through chapter 3, it'll be by His will. You have wearied the Lord with your words. This is Malachi speaking again to the people. He has already rebuked them about their faithless marriages and their faithlessness to God. And then they were crying to God because God then was not accepting of their worship. Now Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord. The word wearied here is very interesting. It means what you think it means. It means to grow tired, to exhaust, or to feel labored. Now, this is a very interesting thing that this verse says because 
from what we know in other passages of scripture, can God grow tired? Does God get sleepy? Well, it says it right here that they have wearied God. So what do we do in making sense of this? Because we know, of course, that God doesn't grow weary or grow tired. For example, here's what Isaiah 40.28 says. Isaiah 40.28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His understanding is unsearchable. No, this is not a contradiction. But Dan, you have Isaiah saying that he doesn't grow weary and Malachi saying he does. It's not a contradiction. Let me explain. One of the things we must remember about God is what theologians call, and if you're taking notes, write this down, the impassibility of God. The impassibility of God. Which simply means this, that God doesn't have changeable emotions. If you're in one of my 1689 groups, you're familiar with that as we went through chapter 2 and saw the attributes of God. That God does not have changeable emotions. What does that mean? It means this. God doesn't get moody like you or me. God doesn't have good days, right? He doesn't have bad days. Meaning his mood is not affected by his creation. He is immutable. We're going to see that in a few weeks. Verse 6 of chapter 3. God, we are told in the scriptures, is not moved by anything outside of himself. He acts in accordance with his nature, and his nature is holy and pure and righteous. He's faithful, and he does not change. So, that's what we know to be true about God. That God, we can count on him, we can rely on him. So how do we then interpret this verse that says that we have wearied the Lord, or Judah, Israel, has wearied the Lord with their words? Does he or doesn't he? Well, the golden rule of Scripture, especially that of interpretation of Scripture, is there is no greater interpreter of Scripture than Scripture. You have to understand the Bible according to what the Bible says, And so you interpret the unclear passages with the clear passages, right? You let the Bible interpret the scripture. Because if you and I, and people do this all the time, and they come up with all kinds of wacky ideas, right? If you and I let our emotions interpret the text into what we want it to say, or what we think it ought to say, we're always going to get it wrong, right? In fact, not only does Isaiah 40, 28 say he doesn't get wearied, But let me throw another one at you. Malachi is not the only place that says that God has grown weary. And Isaiah chapter 1 verse 14 is another one. Here God says to them as Isaiah begins his prophecy in chapter 1. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of 
bearing them. It's another one. So, I am the Lord, I do not grow weary, and I am weary of your sins here in Isaiah chapter 1. I'm weary of your words in Malachi chapter 2. What we have to do, obviously, is we have to look at the context of each verse. We have to look at the context of each verse and see what it is saying. And when you look at the context of both of these verses and understand it in the grand scheme of the attributes of God and systematic theology, what we're trying to say and what Malachi is intending to say here is this. That God's patience is reaching an expiration. Now I'm going to get into that in just a moment. The reason we have a hard time of understanding these words and the way it's presented to us is because there is no great way to present it. Human language often fails us from capturing the glories of God. And so oftentimes what the writers of the scriptures do is they put human words to these grand mysteries to help us understand. They put human language, they bring it down to our language. For example, we know God is a spirit. He has no body. That's what the scripture says. But we're also told that the Lord has hands, arms, feet, eyes. So which is it? Again, he has no body, but it's written in a way to help us understand. When it says the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, what does it mean? Well, it's helping us understand. We have our eyeballs. We see with our eyeballs that the Lord looks at everything. He knows everything, Right? The arm of the Lord is not short that he cannot save. What is it telling us? That God is powerful. We know the power comes from arms and strength. Comes from when we lift things up. Those are human words to help us explain. And human words and emotions often fail us to capture the full meaning. So we got to humanize it. So when Malachi says that God has grown weary... It's just saying this. He is saying this to the people to help them understand... That the time of his divine patience is reaching an expiration. This isn't to say that God loses his temper. Because God never loses his temper. Right? To lose your temper would be sinful. It would be to act emotionally and out of selfishness. But God we know is patient and kind But he does pour his wrath on sinners, on their sins. He is patient to a point. He never loses his cool, but he does bring justice and judgment. So here's Israel, and we've seen again and again, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Look at the things they have been telling to God. They've been questioning God the whole time, haven't they? How have you loved us, God? You love us. What have you done for me lately? And the things that they have been living have just fallen short of how they ought to have lived. What I want us to examine today is the patience of God. Or when God's patience reaches an expiration. When does God pour his wrath on sinners for their sin? And when does he not? 
Because we're told, according to the attributes of God, this is who he is. We see in Psalm 86.15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It doesn't say that God doesn't get angry, but God is slow to get angry. See, there's a, there's a, there's a point where he judges, where his patience expires. And that is not determined by you. That is determined according to his character and his nature by this sovereign will. It is determined by his holiness and his righteousness and a God who acts always in justice, who never does owe, never does wrong. Oh, friend, if we would understand the patience of God today, if you would understand and know how patient he's been towards you, you would repent. You would not try God anymore. This is what Israel has failed to see again and again. God brings them to the promised land. He gives them what he's told them he's going to give them. They disobey God. They get other idols. They do great injustices toward one another. What does God do? After a point, he sends Nebuchadnezzar to judge them. The great, the great thing we must glory in God is this. That God doesn't judge us the first time we sin. Or God doesn't judge us every time we sin. Why? Because God is slow to get angry. He's patient. He's kind. He's loving. But because he's a good judge, he must act. God's patience is meant for something. Here's Israel a hundred years after God brings them back to the land and they go back to doing the things they were doing before. And if I were God, I would say, really people? Haven't we been over this already? This is deja vu. I'm done with you. See you later. But God's patient with them. And this is what I think that that sentence is trying to bring across. Malachi says to them that you have wearied the Lord. Not that God has grown tired of you or that he is exhausted because we know that can't be true. But a human way to understand that you are pushing his patience. You are trying the edge. You're going to the cliff of destruction. You don't even know it. You have wearied the Lord's patience with you. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. He says to the Jewish people there. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness... And forbearance and patience. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's amazing. 
Think of your life. Think of all the things that you have done before you knew Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you came to know the Lord late in life, or maybe in your 20s or 30s, 40s, maybe as a teenager. Think of your life before Christ, what you deserve, how patient God was towards you. Because, friend, you know what we all deserve? We have sinned against the holy God. We have sinned against the holy God. We have committed treason against the God of the universe. And the fact that he allows us to breathe another breath is an act of mercy and grace. Not a one of us deserves another second. But God's patience and kindness and not striking us dead on the spot Paul says, is meant to lead you to repentance. To see the goodness of God in your life and that you would turn towards him. But Paul continues, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Every day, every day you do not repent. I'm talking to unbelievers. Every day you do not repent. Every day you go another day not believing. Every day you don't turn from your sins. You are storing up wrath for yourself. And God is patient with you to not send you to hell already. Think about that, my friends. Those are scary words. Because of your hard hearts, you are storing up wrath. If you're not a Christian today, it's not that you will have the wrath of God upon you, but that you already have it upon you. You have it stored upon you. You have this because of your belief or unbelief in his gospel and who he is and your refuse refusal to repent of your sins and turn to him. This is what John says in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But listen, but the wrath of God remains on him. The fact that you do not believe in Jesus Christ and are not a born-again Christian, you, it's not that you will have wrath upon you. You have wrath now. And right now it's building and it's building and accumulating upon you. One little ounce of wrath is enough to condemn us all. In fact, we're born with it. Adam's sin is inherited into our natures. We're born sinful. We're born needing to be judged by God. Let's put it another way. Every time a lost person or a sinner sins without Christ, they're making a deposit. They're making a deposit into God's bank. And storing up wrath, if you want to put it another way, is collecting interest on your deposit. 
And what this is saying is simply this. God always collects his interest. And that interest is collected in the name of divine justice. Whether you live to be 20 or 30 or 80 years old is all by the grace of God. Every breath you have is a gift, especially for those of you who are without Jesus Christ. God is being patient towards you. God's patience has an expiration. Before God sent Babylon to destroy them, God had warned them about his expiring patience. You see, this has already happened more than one time in Israel's history, right? Promised land, God gives them all these things, they disobey God. And God, when he's judging them with Nebuchadnezzar, three waves of persecution, he says to them in Ezekiel chapter 7, warning them through the prophet Ezekiel, now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your abominations. This is what he said to Israel. And he did. That wrath that they stored up for themselves. God says, I will spend it. I will make a withdrawal from the bank with interest and spend it on you in holy anger and judge you according to your ways. Those are sobering words, my friends. And Israel felt that. Israel felt that. Where is this, where is this wrath stored up? That makes God's patience expire. Well, we need to use biblical words. And the Old Testament uses such a word. It's used in the word cup. The word cup. This is what Psalm 75, 7 through 8 says. About God's wrath being stored in a cup. Listen. But it is God who executes judgment putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Here wine is used as a symbol to show how the wine is brought about. Wine is brought about by what? Crushing grapes, right? How do you get wine? You crush grapes, You get the grape juice, and the grape juice ferments and becomes wine. The sweeter the wine, the older it is. Right? The older, more advanced wine is the aged wine. Hopefully now you understand what we're talking about here. Maybe you've heard of the the Grapes of Wrath. I think there was a famous book called The Grapes of Wrath. Maybe even a movie, I don't know. That's where they get that expression. The Battle Hymn of the Republic, where the grapes of wrath are stored. I don't know, I'm not going to sing it, Jimmy. Maybe that's okay. The Grapes of Wrath. This is biblical language. The crushing of grapes. It's all stored in this cup. So another way to think of it, if we can imagine this imaginary cup of wrath, every time we sin, we add to it wrath upon our lives. And one day, 
God will pour the contents of that cup upon us. And we will have to pay an answer for everything we've stored in that cup. This is what Psalm 75, 8 says. And the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The dregs is another way to say the sediment. The things that settle at the bottom of the cup from the wine. They'll drain it down to the bottom. They'll be held accountable for everything. The sweeter the wine, the older it is. You may say, why do evil people get away with such things? Friends, nobody gets away with anything. There's coming a day where all mankind will be held to account. And every last drop we've stored in that cup, unbelievers will have to drink every last drop. Let's put it this way. Maybe it'll help you appreciate what Jesus says even more in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when he's praying and he's in the garden and he's under great agony. He was whole, his soul was sorrowful unto death. And he's praying to the Father and the disciples are falling asleep and he's praying to the Father. And he falls on his face in Matthew 26, 39. And he prays, my Father, if it be possible, let this, what's that word? Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's Jesus saying? He knows what's coming to him, isn't it? He knows that that cup of wrath that the Father has ordained for him, for those whom he has come to save, is about to be poured upon him. And Jesus will have to drink the drops of every ounce of wrath in that cup stored up for sinners. Every ounce of it. He knows what's coming his way. This is what happened to Jesus on the cross. God judged him as if he were you. So that those who believe in Jesus and call on his name, he says, even though you've earned this cup of wrath, you don't have to drink it. If you believe and trust in me, Jesus drinks it for you. Jesus drinks it for you. Every last drop. And here's the difference. Here's the difference. You say, well, what's the big deal? Whether I drink the cup or Jesus drinks the cup, here's the difference. You drink the cup and there's no satisfaction. There's no ending. This is why hell is forever. This is why the lake of fire is forever and ever and ever. Why? Because sinners will continually try to drink the cup to satisfy the wrath of God and they will never come to that end. Because there's only one way that God is satisfied. It's when the holy, perfect, spotless Lamb of God drinks it for them. And when he drinks it, he drinks it in great satisfaction and appeases God the Father for the wrath of sinners who've earned that cup. One way or another, the contents of that cup get spilled. If you were a Christian, Jesus drank the cup for you. And you never have to drink it, ever. He's drunk your cup, past, present, and future. 
And for God's patience to expire on you is to say that God's patience on Jesus expires. And friends, will that ever happen? Of course not. Therefore, those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Why? Jesus drank the cup. Every ounce will be held accountable. That's the problem. Because he is holy, he must deal with all sin. Nobody gets away with anything. For those who reject him, who reject the gospel, who remain unbelievers, they drink their cup to no satisfaction. Jesus drank it once and it was enough to satisfy the wrath of God for all who believe forever. What goes in that cup must come out. What goes in must come out. Praise God, Jesus drank it for us. But for those, for those who decide to drink their own cup of wrath and bear the wrath of God and judgment of God forever, there is an expiration coming of God's patience with you. There will be a one day coming. No one's promised when that will be, today or tomorrow or next week or 50 years from now. There's a day coming where you will make your last deposit in that cup and you'll be forced to drink it forever. There's no second chances when you die. There's none. You either repent now or never. You repent in this life or you're doomed forever. This is the gospel that Christ has accomplished it for us. Amen. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means satisfaction. Jesus paid it all for you, my friend. Every last drop. This is what God is saying to Israel here. It's talking about the patience of God. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Hmm. God doesn't grow tired. But there's a day where his divine patience is no more. For those who reject him. And they have the audacity, if you look at verse 17, the audacity to ask then, how have we wearied him? They're in complete denial. They're in complete denial of their state before God. And the Malachi answers by saying, these are the words that were trying God's patience. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Can you believe that? Here's Israel, supposed to be a kingdom of priests of the world, representation of righteousness to the nations. And they are calling what is good evil. 
And they call what's evil good. And then they say that God even delights in those who do evil. That is nothing but condemning people to hell, my friends. To prevent a barrier of repentance. To tell evildoers that there's no need to repent. Just remain as you are. Just have your best life now. And move on with happiness. Is a pathway to hell. This is what they were doing. Does this sound familiar with what's going on today? Good is evil and evil is good. Is our world mixed up or what? Yes, it is. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? (laughs) And here they go again with their, woe is me, what have you done for me lately, God? First of all, they redefine what sin is. They hold people to a different standard. Then they blame God. Where are you, O God? Where have you been? Where is the God of justice? Do you think we deserve all that you put us through? Where is this God of justice? Wow. You see what apathy does? Not good. Apathy now takes you down to a place where <laughs> a place where you just blame God for everything. Reinterpreting God's rule, law, justice, making God the evildoer. See, they were so upset at God because here's the temple rebuilt, but the glory of God is not returned to the temple. Where is the God of justice? And if they've been listening to what Malachi's been saying, read chapter one, read chapter two. You want to know where God is? You think God's going to bless this mess? You have grown the Lord weary with your words. His patience will soon expire on you. You want to know where the Lord is in his temple? Repent, Israel. Repent. (laughs) Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, the Lord says, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. See, this answers the question, where is the God of justice? You want to know where I am? You see, because when Solomon built the first temple... The glory of God shone down. And the place was filled with glory. No mistaking it. Here they rebuild the temple and they're still waiting. Where are you God? Where are you God? Where are you God? Why aren't you here? You've forgotten about us. You don't love us. You let evil people, good people get away with everything. What about us? 
And the Lord says, you want to know where I'm at? You want to know when I'm coming to visit the temple that you're so expecting me to come? Here you go. I'll tell you when I'm coming. First, I'm going to send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That, my friends, is a messianic promise that is fulfilled by John the Baptist, the messenger of Christ, the forerunner of Christ, the one who came to Israel before the Lord Jesus began his public ministry saying what? Repent! Repent! This is what they've needed to hear for 400 years when John the Baptist arrives. Repent! That's when I will come. Then, listen to this. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. John chapter 1, we're told about what? John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and tie his sandals. You know what John chapter 2 is about? Jesus comes to the temple, cleanses the temple, chases away the evil people from the temple. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. What is Malachi 3.1? It is a messianic promise that is fulfilled in John chapter 1 and 2. Behold, he is coming. He is coming. You people have blown it. I have rejected your priests. I've rejected you. I've rejected your offerings. You don't know when I'm coming. I'm coming to my temple and this is the sign that you will know that I am here. This is a promise about Christ. Because at the end of the day, Israel could not do it. The priests could not do it. The kings could not do it. The prophets could not do it. Only Christ can do it. Only Christ can renew the hearts of his people. But here's the warning. Look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will remove the, purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. When the Messiah comes, he's going to clean this place up. Look at John chapter 2. It happened. The priest's offering that I once rejected, he will purify and renew them so that the offerings can come again in righteousness to the Lord. For 400 years, God was silent until the days of John the Baptist as prophesied here in John chapter three, Malachi chapter 3. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Wow. God's patience. God's patience. He's so good. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Woe. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. 
If you think that the coming of the Messiah is just going to be like a bed of roses, you've got another thing coming. He's coming to clean you people up and then my judgment will come to you. Then my judgment will come because you people have a lot of repenting to do. And the fact that I haven't already judged you is a testimony to my grace and mercy. And this thing won't be fixed until he arrives. He is coming. Hey, this week begins December. Guess what? He came. Christmas is almost here. If you haven't already been able to tell. He is coming. This is the hope. Finally in Malachi, we have hope. Right? I mean, so far it's dung on your faces and all this other crazy stuff. He is coming. But do not try his patience. Repent. Run to Christ. Find hope in him. This is the message for Malachi's day and it's the message for our day. Except we could say he already came. And he is coming again. Do not delay. Do not delay. Stop storing up wrath for yourself. It's a cup, trust me, you do not want to drink. Christ, drink it for all those who believe in him. Will you believe? Will you trust in him? Will you repent of your sins? Will you call upon him in faith? Will you believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead? Will you? Will you? That's the only way to stop drinking the cup. Because the cup has to be drunk. What goes in must come out. It's either on you or on Christ. What will you decide? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Three chapters through Malachi and we, we get to some gospel hope. Oh, but Lord, just do your work in us. First of all, let me speak to the Christians and pray for the Christians in this room. Those of you, those in here who have trusted in Christ and there are born again Christians, but they're playing around with sin. They're treating the cup that Jesus drank for them. It's not that great. Not that important. That they'd rather deal with the sin that Jesus had to drink for them. They'd rather keep playing around with it. May you remind them of your, of your patience toward them. Lead them to repentance. Renew their hearts. May they trust in you. Be reminded of who they are in Christ. Father, I pray for those in here who's, who are willfully still storing up wrath for themselves in the cup of wrath. May they know today, may they be convicted and drawn by your Holy Spirit that one day they will have to answer and they will have to drink. They will be held accountable. 
May they see the beauty and the glory of the gospel. That that is not necessary. That if they believe in the Lord Jesus and repent of their sins, Lord, that they can be saved and will be saved today. Change their hearts so they can believe and trust fully that Christ has drunk every drop for them. There's not a drop available for them left to drink if they believe. Encourage our hearts in this, God. You know the hearts of every man and woman, child in this room. You know what they need to do next. We trust you for the results. What you would do, be glorified in this moment. In your name, amen. Let's stand as we sing a closing hymn together. If I can help you in any way, please see me afterwards in the Welcome Center. I'd be glad to speak with you. God bless you. I'm praying for you. No matter who you are, what you need to do next. May you be obedient to the Lord. Let's sing.